This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin State Senate has approved a bill that would double fines for reckless driving. The bill increases the fines for reckless driving that causes bodily harm and increases time in prison for offenses that result in great bodily harm. The Associated Press reports that the measure is part of the push to curb dangerous driving. Milwaukee Mayor Cavalier Johnson has called reckless driving a crisis in the city. Governor Tony Evers has already signed a Republican-authored bill that would authorize local governments to impound vehicles of unsafe drivers. The bill will go next week to the desk of the governor, who has voiced support for the proposal. The state Senate has also passed a bill that would undo a Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling that made it easier for state and local agencies to delay delivering public records. The bill would make it easier to recover attorney's fees for people who sue on open records requests. In a 4-3 to three ruling last year, the state's top court ruled that a government authority isn't required to pay a plaintiff's attorney fees if the government body turned over records before the lawsuit heads to trial. Currently, litigants must get a favorable ruling from a judge to recover attorney's fees. The bill still needs approval from the state assembly and Governor Evers. Wisconsin's funding per student at public colleges and universities has surpassed the national rate of funding per student for the first time in five years. Wisconsin students receive receive roughly $350,000 more per student than their counterparts nationwide. Data released in a report by the Wisconsin Policy Forum also revealed that enrollment declines outpaced the national rate, especially for two-year campuses. UW system enrollment fell about 5% between 2019 and 2022, with the pandemic being the biggest factor for the slump. The report credits the improvements in funding per student coming from a strong state budget, as well as the drop in student enrollment. Existing funding was spread across fewer students. Property once intended for high-tech Foxconn manufacturing complex will become the site of a $1 billion Microsoft data center. The deal was approved by Racine County Boards this week. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that construction of the data center must start before July 2026. Microsoft says the data center will employ 300 to 400 people. The results of the April 4th election have been certified by the Wisconsin Elections Commission. That means two referendum items approved by votes earlier this month are now enshrined in the state constitution. One of the amendments allowed judges to consider past convictions for violent crimes when setting bail. The other expands the definition of public safety when judges set release conditions. Wisconsin's seasonally adjusted unemployment rate fell to a record low of 2.5% in March, a state agency reports. The number of unemployed people decreased by 6,400 to a record low of 76,600. The State Department of Workforce Development announced this today. A new unemployment rate broke a record set in February when 2.7% of workforce was jobless. The state has a workforce participation rate of 64.6%. An adult bobcat is apparently unhurt after being hit by a motorist in Portage County and becoming lodged behind the front bumper. Portage County Sheriff's deputies and a state conservation warden managed to free the animal. Tuesday evening, in a rescue captured on video and broadcast around the state. 
According to WSAW-TV in Wausau, the driver assumed they had struck some road debris, but then when they got out to inspect the damage, they encountered a wild feline that was very much alive. Bobcats can range from 15 to 35 pounds, with a head and body 25 to 30 inches in length. The city of Sun Prairie will follow up Earth Day this week with a month-long mowing moratorium meant to make early season flowers, such as clover and dandelions, available to bees and other pollinators. This will be the second no-mow-may that the city has observed after it received generally positive response to the initial program in 2022. Some city-owned properties were left unmowed, and 342 private property owners also registered as participants. Sun Prairie is including additional education and communication on its website about the option of low-mow-may, which is an alternative for folks who want to participate but may not have the option or desire to refrain from mowing their grass. The city of Madison approved low mow may last year, passing an ordinance that allowed property owners to mow their lawns just once next month. And now on to today's top stories. Today is 420, an informal holiday celebrating marijuana use, but pot remains illegal in Wisconsin and under federal law. It may be no accident that lawmakers at the state capitol picked today to return to the issue of legalization in Wisconsin. While Democrats have long proposed legislation to legalize, their Republican counterparts could be changing their tune, and Wisconsin could see a bill for medical marijuana as soon as this fall. WRT news reporter Faye Parks has the story. Senate Minority Leader Melissa Agard, a Democrat of Madison, has long made legalization her key issue. She first introduced a bill to legalize marijuana a decade ago while still in the state assembly. But that and subsequent proposals from state Democrats have been met with staunch opposition from Republicans over the past 10 years. With new leadership in the state Senate, Republicans have hinted that this year might be different. Earlier this year, top Republicans indicated they might be willing to work on legalizing marijuana for medical use. And today on 420, the Associated Press reports that Republican lawmakers are working on their own medical marijuana bill. According to Robin Voss, the top Republican in the assembly, a bill could be headed to the legislature this fall. Legalizing has a high degree of support across the political aisle. More than 80% of Wisconsinites support a medical marijuana program, according to a 2019 Marquette Law School poll. And almost 64% of Wisconsinites support legalizing marijuana for recreational use, according to a more recent law school poll last fall. Speaking at the Capitol today, Senator Agard, now the Senate Minority Leader, announced her plan for a statewide listening session on full legalization. She's calling it a grassroots tour. I'm going to be visiting communities of Platteville, Wauwatosa, Eau Claire, and Wausau just to start, meeting with stakeholders, supporters, curious and concerned community members, local leaders, and other people that choose to join us to discuss the impacts that full legalization of cannabis could have on the state of Wisconsin. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to actually meet people where they are at and listen to them. She pointed to the overwhelming public support for the issue. And this is a broad coalition of people, like I have not seen on any other policy in the state of Wisconsin. A recent report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum found that changing laws in the surrounding states have made marijuana accessible to Wisconsin's adult residents 
half of whom live within a 75-minute drive to a dispensary in a neighboring state. And those states are benefiting from the tax dollars. In 2022, Michigan made $310 million from marijuana sales. Illinois made $467 million. A memo last month produced by the state's Fiscal Analysis Agency found that Illinois generated more than $36 million in sales tax, just off weed sold to Wisconsinites. And despite today's announcement, Senator Agard pointed to Republican resistance as the biggest hurdle to full legalization. I do talk to Speaker Voss and um, uh, Senator Lemihue and Senator Capica on a regular basis. Uh, welcome them to the table. I would love to hear directly from them what their biggest concerns are, because I do believe that we can take them into consideration with this bill draft and make sure that we are addressing responsibility and safety in the state of Wisconsin. In a statement this afternoon, Agard had harsher words. She called Voss's news today an empty promise, adding, quote, during his 10 years as speaker, Voss's track record is one of prohibition, not progress, unquote. Exactly a year ago, on 420, a GOP-led bill to establish a medical marijuana program received a public hearing. That was the furthest illegalization bill has ever gotten in Wisconsin, but it died in committee. Jay Seltoffner, founder and director of the Wisconsin Cannabis Activist Network, says that medical marijuana programs are often the first step to more broad legalization in other states. He also notes that he sees a clear pattern in the state legislature's continued failure to take that step. The, the bills fall short. They don't compromise. They don't meet the needs of patients. They create a monopoly type situation for pharmaceutical cannabis in Wisconsin. Uh, in my eyes, we could do a lot better than the bills that were presented in the past, uh, especially since the bills that the Republicans are presenting haven't gathered enough support for them to pass within their own party, uh, and they haven't gathered any Dem support. Agard also says she was skeptical of last year's bill, or any legalization proposal that doesn't address the systemic issues created by marijuana prohibition, especially surrounding incarceration. Uh, well, it was clear at that public hearing that um, consumers of cannabis, activists of cannabis, as well as law enforcement and um, the healthcare community were not in support of that legislation. It does not line up with what it is that I have heard from people all across the state of Wisconsin, the ordinary, everyday people of our communities on what it is that they're asking for. The Grassroots Tour makes its first stop on May 4th at the Platteville Public Library from 4 to 5 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. As Wisconsin policymakers work to craft a new state budget, a research and policy group warns that working families are increasingly carrying the tax burden. Mike Moen of the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Another tax season has wrapped up and Wisconsin researchers say it's a reminder that the state's overall tax structure leaves low and middle income families behind. A policy group says data show it's becoming harder for these households to survive. The organization Kids Forward uses state revenue department information and census data for its new policy brief. It says when considering all state and local taxes, wealthy residents pay a much lower effective tax rate than the poorest taxpayers. The group's Kristen Schumacher says this comes as income remains stagnant for those who aren't wealthy, worsening economic inequalities. In the last two years, one in three Wisconsin households with children have really struggled to pay for basic expenses. 
it's also really important to note that some households of color with children were far more likely to face hardship. Wisconsin does have a tiered income tax, but the report says the state's flat sales tax rate has a greater impact on lower-income households. Democratic Governor Tony Evers has floated expanding the earned income tax credit while pushing for higher taxes on the wealthy. But Republicans who control the legislature want a flat income tax, citing the idea would spur more business activity. The proposed flat tax rate isn't likely to survive the current budget debate, but could eventually resurface. Schumacher argues that aggressively cutting taxes, including for the wealthy, makes it harder to maintain services and would cost the state in the long run. She says there are examples of this approach not working to boost a regional economy. I think that we can point to Kansas and their disastrous tax cuts that they made about a decade ago that really constricted their state budgets and was actually repealed a few years later because what they were forced to do was to cut critical programs and services, things like schools and funding for health care. Schumacher says that creates more pressure to raise local taxes, which hits working families. She says expanding the earned income tax credit has proven to cut poverty. Wisconsin has a large budget surplus right now. The report warns that strong footing could erode if policymakers offer a budget that relies on an unfair tax structure. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. It's now 6.20 p.m. You're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Dane County Sheriff's Department began using automated license plate readers in a pilot study a year ago. It is one of over 50 law enforcement agencies that use such technology in Wisconsin. WRT reporter Christopher Cartwright investigated the developing surveillance infrastructure across the state. I'm standing beneath one of the approximately two dozen automated license plate reader cameras scattered throughout Dane County. Installed as part of a National Policing Institute study last April, the cameras sit on poles and automatically photograph every car that passes. They're called Automated License Plate Readers, or ALPRs, and the Dane County Sheriff is only one of many law enforcement agencies using this technology. Right now, 69 law enforcement agencies across Wisconsin use these license plate readers. The Green Bay Police Department alone is home to 28 cameras, approved unanimously by the City Council in fall 2022. And while the cameras are gaining popularity among police in the state, many ALPRs are developed by one company, Flock Systems. You know how your Apple iOS, your Apple operating system, kind of operates everything in your personal life, right? It's got your contacts, your email, all of that. We are building that essentially for cities to have all of their public safety infrastructure on one, through one company, through one suite of devices, hardware, and software. That's Holly Balin, a spokesperson for Flock. The Atlanta-based company was formed in 2017 and now boasts over 2,000 law enforcement partners. Flock's main product is those ALPR systems. The devices that we're referring to in Dane County in particular are our automated license plate recognition cameras. So our ALPR cameras, as they're called. And they are actually motion-activated still cameras that take a picture of the back of a vehicle and the license plate. And they categorize that vehicle by different attributes, so color, make of the vehicle. And then they actually compare the license plate to different state and national crime databases. 
Balin says that the devices encrypt all pictures, and any photos not used in investigations are automatically deleted after 30 days. Dave Mass, the director of investigations for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, argues that 30 days is much longer than necessary. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to deny it. 30 days is better than six months, better than, which is better than one year, which is better than two years. But think about how many places you drive in 30 days and what kind of, what could that could reveal about you? Like if a police officer had two days worth of your driving uh, history, that may not tell a lot about you. It may give an idea of where you work or that sort of thing. But 30 days can tell a lot. You know, it might, you know, not just reveal where you work and where you sleep. It might reveal where you worship. It might reveal who you're dating. It might reveal, if you're a journalist, you know, when you're going out to cover a story or meet sources. It can reveal a lot of sensitive information. So what I would say is that 30 days is better than some of the other options out there. But really, why do police need it more than three minutes, which is the case in New Hampshire? The Electronic Frontier Foundation is a San Francisco-based nonprofit that defends civil liberties in relation to new technologies. They are a critic of both the technology and Flock safety as a company. So Flock is a tech company. While they have this motto that they're there to end crime and stop crime, at the end of the day, they're a tech company whose goal in life is to profit. And so we really have to understand that when you have a company like Flock that is going to police departments and cities and selling their product, the, the, what they're not doing is putting uh, public safety first or putting the community needs first. They're putting their investors first. So Flock has this uh, saying that they are, their goal as a company is to eliminate all crime. Now, crime and what is a crime is a very political thing uh, in the United States. And so we asked them, in states that are criminalizing abortion, do you intend to end abortion with your technology? And they acknowledge that they're not in the business of deciding what is a crime, but once a government decides what is a crime, they are out there to stop it. While most discussions and reports on this tool focus on local jurisdiction, the issue actually affects people beyond the city or county's borders. Balin explained the data sharing capabilities of the ALPR system. The data and the footage is wholly owned by the customers, so the law enforcement agencies themselves. Sloth doesn't own any of the data, which means that we can never sell it or, sell it or share it with any third parties. Now, they are, sub, they are able to share that with other law enforcement agencies, provided both agencies, of course, opt in. Now, why that's so important is we know that folks who commit crime don't stay within a specific jurisdiction, right? They don't stay within the boundaries of a certain town or city or county. Wart News determined that over 50 agencies constitute the Wisconsin ALPR Association using a Freedom of Information Act request. This doesn't cover them all, as the list creation date remains unclear, and new departments like Dane County have been added in recent years. To understand the scope, we created an interactive map available at wortfm.org, tracking each department. Where possible, we included additional links to sources beyond the associated membership list. Mass emphasized that the concerns stemmed from real-world examples, both software flaws and human abuses. Let's not just talk about abuse. Let's start with mistakes. So there is a harrowing video out of Aurora, Colorado from a couple of years ago where police used license plate readers and the license plate reader mis like made a mistake in reading a license plate and told police that this SUV full of black children was a stolen vehicle. And so they pull all of these kids out of this car, throw them on the ground, put them in handcuffs, 
one of the kids in the picture must be like a five-year-old girl wearing a little princess crown. And they just traumatize these kids. These kids are going to be scarred for life because it's a police encounter. And it all had to do with a license plate reader making a mistake and telling police that people had stolen a car who hadn't. Now, when it comes to abuses, in Kansas, uh, there were a bunch of agencies that use flock safety, license plate reader technology. And one police lieutenant in Ketchy actually went into the system, the flock system, and used the license plate reader data to stalk his wife. And this wasn't even this Ketchy police officer using data collected in Ketchy. He used data that was shared with Ketchy from a different police department altogether. And that's one of the big concerns with systems like flock is that it's hard enough for a single police department to catch, to catch somebody abusing the data internally, but Flock encourages agencies to share data, you know, with each other across the country. Somebody in Madison doesn't have any control uh, politically or in terms of accountability with somebody outside of the city or outside of the state. And so that's one of the main dangers here is that the data is not staying internal to your particular city. Take Dane County as a whole. Police departments in Monona, Cottage Grove, Stoughton, Oregon, Verona, Fitchburg, and Middleton, along with the Dane County Sheriff's Office and the Wisconsin State Patrol, all employ the technology. Some departments have a single squad car outfitted with cameras, while others like Cottage Grove used fixed cameras. Dane County Sheriff's spokesperson Elise Schaefer tells WORT that whether or not the department will continue to use the cameras will be evaluated after the year-long project. Additionally, she says that while the Dane County Sheriff has a general policy on license plate readers, it would need updating if they choose to continue using cameras from Flock. Ten years ago, the implementation of automated license plate reader cameras by Dane County Police Departments was highlighted by various news outlets, including the Wisconsin State Journal. Since then, the program has only expanded. So, so every, you know, every city should go through a process to come up with its own solution and decide you know, what is appropriate? What are the actual problems that they're trying to solve? What is the demographic makeup of the, the area? And how are they going to prevent this technology from, be, from resulting in over-policing of marginalized communities? But some of the things that I would, I would just put out there for consideration is reducing that retention period, you know, down to as, as brief a period as, as possible for people who are not already on a watch list. Uh, I would say making sure that there are extremely robust audits in place so the police are essentially checking every time somebody searches the system to make sure they're not abusing it. But, you know, I would say that there needs to go through a public process where they really decide what the retention periods are, how these are going to be audited, where they're going to be placing these cameras, how people will be able to actually you know, will people be able to access their own license plate reader data? Can they ask for it to be purged? And how are they going to ensure that the license plate readers aren't making mistakes and putting people in the, you know, the police site when they really shouldn't be? This is Christopher Cartwright for WORT News. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Every other Thursday, we air an excerpt of Out of the Box podcast. This week, Host D-Star sits down with members of Briar Patch Youth Services, a local nonprofit that works with runaway, homeless, and at-risk youth. D's joined by Ian Carter, Jasmine Benson, Willie Watkins, and Michaela Harris. After asking them to describe more about Briar Patch, he asked his guests why they do this work. 
Let's take a listen. So, Willie, why is this work so important to you personally? For me personally, it's just kind of giving back some of those gems that I guess I missed out on. Being able to, I guess, get through a tough situation in time and um, be mentally stable enough to kind of uh, go back and help others through that point in their life. And like I said, just being having to relocate from Chicago to Milwaukee, coming to a place like Madison. It was a real humbling experience. Not a lot of the things that I've seen where I came from. So to see young people distressed and distraught, kind of nowhere directional to kind of go in a place like this, it was just heartbreaking. It's green grass, it's trees. Like the atmosphere in, in Madison was lovely for me. You know, so being able to get through all of my traumas and all of the things that triggered me and accept this place uh, for what it was. So you guys deal with a lot of things day to day that your average person really don't know about. And I have some statistics here and it says like, you know, in Dane County, 300 youth are homeless right now, which is staggering. How do you guys turn it off? How do you guys decompress? How do you guys still feel up to going home and dealing with your own kids or, you know, dealing with the public and not seeing life through that lens? I don't think you do turn it off. Very much like the youth and the families that we work with, they don't have the option to turn it off. So it kind of translates over to us. Um, In addition to we are also members of this very community. So a lot of these people are our cousins or our nephews or our neighbors or our coworkers, you know, so to, to, to be able to separate yourself, first of all, I don't think uh, any of us really do. That's why we do this work. Um, and then even if we wanted to, I don't know if it's, if it's even possible, this is a way of life for us. That's one of the, the real big intangibles about our team here is everybody is here because this is our life service, Serving our community, giving back is something that, one, all of us have been able to be privy to and benefit from. And two, as a result of that, all of us want to pay that forward and give that energy back. So I know when I first moved here, like him, um, it, it was the center. It's not a Boys and Girls Club. And for everyone for like Belinda Lewis and David Smith and Cedric Morris and Ursie Green, Posthumous Ursie Green, makes you rest in peace, you know, feed me and get me right. You know, I don't know where I would be. I don't know. Yeah. So, like I said, my mom still, uh, you know, is recovering that. My mom still goes. So, I, we are the community. So, it makes it easier to, to um, I guess, sit in the trenches with them. And I've had so many clients tell me, I'm so happy that you're my counselor because of what I've been through. But then, because they say that and you make that connection, I've cried in the car. I ain't ashamed to say it. Yeah. I've definitely cried in the car, cried in the shower. You know what I mean? I, I pray. You know what I mean? You have to, you know, whatever your higher power is, you have to meditate. I meditate. I, I mean, I look, this work is too, as much as it's uh, selfless, I do it for a selfish reason because it makes me feel good. It does make me, when, when I get a client that I think, you don't know, right, if they're going to take it, you know, but if you get a client and you had that connection with them and you're like, I had a client call me like, yeah, I got a two jobs now, Miss Jasmine, and I bought me a fish tank. I don't know what a 15-year-old need with a fish tank, but it made his day. And he was able to buy it. You know what I'm saying? And he was able to buy it. I was like, well, it's yours, right? I was like, don't forget to save, too. But it's, it's, it's extra. You know right? what I'm saying? Somebody that's not used to having anything exactly, extra. Brother. Now I can afford to have something extra. I can afford a pet. You know what I'm saying? Like, he was so happy. He's like, I'm going to give me a shark. And he started 
naming aquatic animals I've had. So I am proud of that. Like, yeah, um, that's what keeps you, if you can, balanced. I don't think you ever find that way because, like Ian said to his point, like, we are down. Like, me and Willie knew each other before this job, and we... I mean, one day things weren't good, and we both get, we we cried each other arms. Dang, they're like, man, I'm about this close to to. Man, <laughs> really, what? Yeah, we was about to. We was out here. Why'd she we put was you out there like that, <laughs> <laughs> Black men can cry. Yeah, That's just, y'all. I'm problem. just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, serious, man. Like just having those connections to the community you serve is a blessing. So to that point, like, no, you don't turn it off. You know, this is where we come from. These are the people we look like. You know, these are the people we love and all out here. So, yeah, the kids, the wife, all of them things at home, they kind of have to scoot over a little bit, you know, for the greater good of everything. And I think um, that's one of the things we excel at as our individual selves. You know, we um, we are for the higher power. We are for the for the greater good of things. And, yeah, you necessarily can't shine unless everybody shines. And then additionally, I do want to add that it does. You know, make make you hug your people a little bit tighter. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Make you make you appreciate the things that you have in life that are going well. Yeah. Um, and, and then it also allows you to to take the opportunity to to kind of reflect on where you come from and where you are now. So it it, it does help to to make us more appreciative and, and not get so caught up in first world problems. So what's next for Briar Patch, and how can the community get involved? Taking over the world, baby. <laughs> we got a rap album coming. Up. No, <laughs> let me stop. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was called Briar Pains. Uh, <laughs> y'all going to cop that no skill records. No, what we're doing though, seriously, is um, we're going to continue being the advocates in the communities that we serve by the, every program that I re- uh, recommend. Please check out our website, briarpatch.com, uh, org. My bad. Uh, <laughs> that's why I don't rap. Um, no, the briarpatch.org and, uh, we, like I said, all the programs I named, I know Ian's going to do a way better job than me as far as naming them, but um, Willie's going to continue to be in the streets uh, giving people homes, uh, helping uh, young youth find homes and things of that nature. We're just pushing forward. We're going to have a lot of new things. So just I really just check our website to be sure. But whatever you want to do, whether it's donation, donating your time or your financial or, you know, you just want to – See where we don't. We're gonna have open houses coming up. We got art festivals coming. We got a lot of things coming up. So um, we're always doing something. We got. I don't even know if I can name, but we got like a lot of stuff <laughs> coming up that yeah, I think you all, if you care about the youth, you care about your community, uh, should be a part of. And we're welcome. We welcome anybody and everybody. Yeah, we're definitely putting a priority and a focus on being accessible. That's one of the main things we want to be in the future, and not just accessible from a standpoint of. Um, referrals or reactionary, you know, we're authority of justice, which is all good, but we want to be able to be in a standpoint where we're interacting with these youths and their family prior to some of these issues happening so that we can, we can help mitigate or avoid, um, some of these issues. But it's, it's really just, just being accessible to the community, being available and open and not just in terms of the services that we provide, but being open to suggestions of other ways that we can reach out and uh, help out our community. Like Jasmine said, definitely look at our website, briarpatch.org, briarpatch.org. Uh, you can go on there, see some of the programming that we have. You have an opportunity to sign up for volunteering hours, as well as there's a, a platform for donations. But just definitely check us out. We're also on all major social media platforms under Briarpatch, Briarpatch Youth Services. Look us up. 
That was an excerpt of the Oddity Box podcast with host D Star in conversation with members of Briar Patch Youth Services. To listen to the full conversation, find the Oddity Box podcast on your podcast player of choice. This week on The House Always Wins, carpentry educators and wood butchers, Allie and John, examine the origins of the 2x4, the ubiquitous building material that is neither 2 nor 4. I call it housework, cause it's light work. What you, what you gonna do? I'ma throw shapes, filling the base to my feet hurt. Hey! I call it housework. Hello, I'm John. And I'm Allie. And welcome to The House Always Wins, a place where you can learn cool stuff about your house. We all love cool stuff. Today I thought it might be fun to take a hard look at the ubiquitous 2 by Ah, uh, good old 2 by the workhorse of the U.S. home framing. Exactly. And I think one of the most frequently asked questions about 2x4s, for example, is why they're called 2x4s when they are neither 2 inches thick nor 4 inches wide. Oh, my God. The eternal question. Why is it 2x4, not 2x4? It, it is a fair question. Um, and to answer this, it might be useful to look at how a 2x4 actually gets made. 2x4s, 2x6s, they're all a standardized size now, but they didn't used to be. Um, and it all goes back to where lumber comes from. It comes from trees, right? I think everybody knows that. Giant logs are cut down in the forest with big machines hauled to a processing plant where giant saw blades come through and mill it on down into stuff that is approximately two inches thick and various widths uh, through a couple of different machines and milled slightly. And then... It is run into a giant drying machine because uh, trees are full of moisture. They transport tons and tons of water. So when they come right out of the woods and they get sawn up, that wood is still what we would call green. That doesn't mean it's green in color. It means it's green because it's fresh and it has 50 to 60% is almost all moisture. Uh, a typical two by six, for instance, will hold a gallon of water in it before it's dried, which is kind of crazy. So it runs into the dryer, it gets all dried out to a percentage of moisture where it's dry enough and it's stable. Then it runs back into the machinery where they plane it down and put it to the thickness where it ends up being exactly inch and a half by three and a half. And why is it inch and a half and three and a half? Because way back in olden days, they would saw it to two inches by four inches when it was green. And then as it dried over time, it would shrink because wood shrinks. So, and it typically ended up about an inch and a half by three and a half. So that's how the industry ended up standardizing. It was two and by four when it got cut and then it dried over time and turned into an approximately an inch and a half by three and a half, roughly speaking. That's how, uh, more or less, that's how we got there, right? So uh, what you're saying is a two by four is one and a half by three and a half. Yep. And a two by six is one and a half by five and a half. Yep. So I'm assuming that a two by eight is one and a half by seven and a half. Well, uh, no, I I'm sorry. That that's not true. And it actually goes back to the shrinkage thing again, because there's more wood in a wider piece of wood. Um, there's more, there's more opportunity for shrinkage. So a wider board, like a two by eight is going to shrink a lot more than two by four. So it actually shrinks more. And so a two by eight is actually seven and a quarter. And it is confusing. And even we have trouble with sometimes, but um, um, that's just kind of the way it is. And it's kind of where our industry kind of standardized and fell to. Um, and even more confusing, uh, now we've standardized and 
typical lumbers is inch and a half by three and a half. Two by four is inch and a half by three and a half. Two by six is inch and a half by five and a half, et cetera, et cetera. But when you get into older homes and model a really old home, like a hundred years or so, you might find your two buys are actually inch and five eighths or two inches or even wider or thicker. What, what gives up with that? Yeah. I mean, if you look at those, those two buys, they're often, the surface of them is often quite rough, not mm. like today's two buys at all. Um, those two buys, they didn't get planed or surfaced right. to the extent that today's lumber does. Today's lumber is just, it's made from much younger trees. So mm-hmm. they replant trees when they cut them down, but they're also cutting down these newly planted trees, these second growth, third growth trees, um, when they're 40 years old, 60 year old trees. So much smaller trunks that they're working with. Right. Um, the growth rings haven't consolidated over centuries like we see in old growth trees. Um, and you're going to see a lot more lot knots in those, in that two by material. Those young trees are just, they're more squirrely, sort of like young people. Indeed. And the lumber. They're that, teenagers. Exactly. They're the teenagers of trees. And they're just, that's the the lumber that you can buy cut from those 40-year-old trees just reflects its youth. Right. Um, but, so, it's a, but it's a good thing though, right? In a sense that we've kind of stopped or slowed down cutting down the big old old ghost trees and it's become more of like an agricultural product in a way, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the problem is you it takes 200 years to grow a 200-year-old tree. It's true. And that's, that's just math. That's not the timeline that uh, lumber uh, companies are working on here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have the lumber we have these days. It's younger. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do, you, how do you help people choose lumber that's going to work for their purpose? Oh, it's an excellent question. So you may go to your local lumberyard. That's what we would hope you would do. Go to the local lumberyard, or you might also find your way into a big box store and you'll see these piles of two by fours. In some cases, you may see three different kinds of two by four. They look the same. They're two, two by, well, they're inch and a half by three and a half by eight feet long, let's say. And there's three different kinds. And one is like 95 cents. One is like $2 and the other one is three and a half or $4 a piece. I'm afraid you haven't bought a two by four in the last 20 years. Okay. All right. All right. <laughs> that may be pre pandemic uh, prices. Uh, okay. I, I'm known, I'm known to live in the eighties <laughs> price wise. It's true. This is a known thing, but anyway, so you'll have this very cheap and middle grade and a more expensive one. Um, and what you want to, what you're looking at there is it's different grades of lumber and there's a lot and it can be very complicated, but essentially you're going to get what you pay for. And if you're cutting it up into blocks and you're putting it in as blocking or you're, you're not doing anything incredibly important with it, um, the cheaper lumber is less likely to be straight and true. It's probably going to have more knots and more defects, and it may not even be uh, structurally rated, so you couldn't use it for a load-bearing situation. But maybe that's not what you're doing. Maybe you're just building a little bed frame or something. Might be fine. If you're building a structural wall that you want to be straight, you definitely might want to lean more towards that more expensive one because um, it's going to be straighter, truer, have fewer defects, and just be a better looking, um, a better looking board. And looking at it, so how do you know if you get one? Because even those expensive ones uh, might have defects. They might have twists or knots or crowns. The easy way to do it is you pick the board up and you grab it at, the, at an end and you run your eye right down a corner edge. And when you run your eye right down that corner edge and look straight down it, all the defects will pop right out at you. You'll see what we call crown. You'll see bow. You'll see the twist. And if it's bowed and twisted and has defects sitting there, it's probably not going to improve. <laughs> no, it will not improve. <laughs> For sure. So you want to put that one aside and just pick out stuff that's fairly straight. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you what the other uh, workaround that, that we're doing a lot more in the industry and we have for, for some time now is we're using engineered lumber. Um, oh, yeah. Engineered lumber is not uh, just a slice out of, taken out of the trunk of a tree. It's been engineered, processed, manufactured. That engineered lumber is it's straight. It's true. Um, they've, they've tested it. They know exactly how strong each piece of that, that lumber is. And um, it's exactly the dimension you think it's going to be. And it's often available in really long lengths. You can buy engineered lumber that's 40 feet long. You cannot buy a 2 by 12 40 feet long. That is not a thing. That's kind of where the industry is going. Don't be afraid to take a look at that at the, uh, the lumber area you're at and consider it as a choice. Getting into it, there's a lot of different kinds of engineered lumber, and that's probably a conversation for another day. But uh, I think we've kind of given them an idea, right, about, about why 2x4 isn't 2x4 and what they should look for when they buy, go to buy lumber. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll get back to engineered lumber on a, on a separate day, but for now, that's all we have time for. Um, if you have any questions about carpentry or home improvement, send us an email at thehousealwayswins at WORTFM. It's 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. If you're a maker, what is it that drives you to create? In this episode of Radio Chipstone, fiber artist A.J. Hughes shares with contributor Jennifer Fields the reason why her hands stay busy. There is always yarn everywhere. It is something that takes up an immense amount of space. Yarn that hasn't been made into projects, yarn that is in the midst of being made into projects, and yarn that is projects that is just piled in places. (laughs) So is it the yarn that drives you or seeing the finished product that excites you so? I look at crochet as a form of, like, meditation and... Almost on like really bad days, it is like my salvation. Like it is what saves me from going off the deep end and giving in to those really dark thoughts because it is something I can focus on. And then I finish a project and I'm like, cool, I made a thing. And then I can start something else immediately. So then AJ, does that project then hold that thing? Does that project become keeper of whatever those thoughts were? I've actually never thought of it that way. I think it's more so just a an act to keep part of my mind busy to distract from the chaos that is life sometimes. Is it then difficult to part with that thing? Because I know it's a distraction, but there's DNA. When you make something, I honestly believe your DNA is in it, especially when you spend so much time doing it. Mm-hmm. And if you're having those thoughts and this object this garment comes out of that thought is it difficult to like part with that dna is it difficult to part with that i can see that where it's like all right this is what i was dealing with while making this and this product helped me process those thoughts there are definitely some items that if i've been making it for a really long time i I'm really hesitant to let it go or I will duplicate it because I liked it so much and then give the other one to the customer. It's it's definitely hard. There are things where 
I make so many things in a single day where it's like, okay, these things all hold those feelings, but how do I let go of it and move forward? What is it about yarn that gets you, that frees you from those thoughts? So I've been crocheting since I was about 13 years old. It has been a one of those constant hobbies. I like yarn because it you take this string that is like familiar. Everyone knows what yarn is or what it looks like. And then you can turn that into something completely different, something that can take on almost a life of its own. Like I've recently started making like cute little critters and I'm like, oh my God, that's so cute, but so different from like a crocheted top or a sweater that is just something to keep you cozy. Would it be fair or even make sense to say that there are days when crocheting is what gets you out of the bed? Oh, 100%. Like there are days, like I have really bad insomnia, chronic pain. Like, so I'd wake up, mornings are rough. But when I can get up, I, you know, I make my coffee. I feed the annoying orange cat because he has been screaming at me for an hour. And I can sit down and start a new project or resume the project that I have been working on and feel good about producing something and being like, okay, I don't feel good today, but I can put my energy into creating this thing that I'm going to give to someone and I can feel good about that. Is crocheting something that it's not going to, it's not a panacea. It doesn't make everything better, but does it do something that sort of reaffirms that sense of self inability? It absolutely does because they're like, I've been, I started getting sick over a decade ago, I am going to be 31 next month. I have, this is what I've always known. And I've lost my ability to work, to be able to like do all those normal things, but I can still do this thing that I love and that brings me happiness and gets me like crocheting has opened doors that I never expected. Like I did a trade the other day with a friend for crocheted things for a tattoo. Like, that was something I never thought was going to happen. But that to me is so cool that there are people who like my craft enough that they are willing to trade what they do and what they love for that. Like that feels so special. Like I don't make enough money to support myself on my own, but it feels good when I do make a little bit of extra cash and I can help. Like even if it's like, oh, I could buy groceries today or like I could buy my husband like a sweatshirt that he's been wanting because I could afford to do that nice thing for him versus relying on him to always do the nice things for me. I will say one and only one thing. As the primary breadwinner, I might bring in most of the income, but when we are tight, she's the one that saves our ass. This woman can pull blood from a stone when it comes to the side hustle. So whenever it's like, hey, we're short on bills, she manages to sell something, move something, find a project. So, you know, even if it isn't all of our income, the income she makes is the income that keeps us afloat. My mother would say, it doesn't come right away, but it'll come when you need it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, it's like, I, I have the panic attack, she has the solution. It, it's 100% true. He's always like, I'm freaking out about money. It's like, honey, I, uh, like hustler through and through like I 
always can scrape up like a little bit of extra money here and there. Like that is a weird skill that I have picked up over the years. It's like, oh, honey, you need five more dollars. Give me like two hours. I'll figure it out. (laughs) But isn't that part of the whole creative vibe? It is, is like kind of scraping by with what you have and making it work like that. Being someone who has a degenerative illness, like, that has been my life. Like, I wanted to be a nurse. Like, I started going to nursing school and my body was like, hell no, you don't get to do that. And so I had to change my expectations. And this is like one of those things. It's like, you just go with the flow. You figure it out on the fly. One thing, though, I want to make sure of, AJ, is that people don't think this is like some secondary thing. It's not a fallback. It's a finding self. Absolutely. Like, if if you know me, you know that crochet is part of who I am. Like, it's not just a thing that I do. Like, I am that crochet girl. And... It's a part of your fiber. <laughs> He's here all week, folks, because they're married. This man's got the audacity. <laughs> This is my life, is this. (laughs) But it is something that maintains my sanity. When my brain can't figure things out, my fingers can figure out how to do the stitches. So is there anything you want to tell me I didn't ask you? Nothing specific, just that this has been a really cool experience. I've never been interviewed about my crochet or anything like this before so it's cool to be able to talk about it and think about it in ways that are new to me that was feature contributor jennifer fields in conversation with aj hughes and that's a wrap for wort's live local news at six special thanks to peter voler russ Mackey, faye parks d star john stephanie and ali barini and jennifer fields happy 420 everyone thank you guys for listening i'm your host marcus slayton and i'm your host stacy harbaugh thanks for listening good night wort madison